Are we, are we live now? I'm recording. You're Mumbrella listening to Mumbrella Cast. Mumbrella, Mumbrella Cast. Cast. Welcome to the Mumbrella Cast. I'm Tim Burrows. And I'm Vivian Kelly. In the news this week... It's Financial Results Week. We'll discuss how Seven, Icentia, Nine, Southern Cross Osterio and APN Outdoor are travelling. Qantas goes big on diversity with Hugh Jackman. Ructions at Marcel. Plus, we'll be talking about the crisis facing the next generation of journalists. Joining us to talk about the week in Adland is our advertising and comms reporter, Abigail Dawson. Abby, let's start with Qantas and we'll, we'll hear a bit more from Hugh. The spirit of Australia, it connects us no matter where we were born, how we look or how we live. Our spirit is about standing up for what's right standing up for a fair go and about standing up for those who can't. Are you ready? Uh, Yes, so Qantas launched an ad called Stand Up for the Spirit of Australia, which stars one of its ambassadors, an Australian actor, Hugh Jackman, as well as the Australian of the Year and AFL star Adam Goods. And the ad basically aims to show diversity by including same-sex couples, people of different religions playing cricket, Um, the Mardi Gras parade, Wallaby rugby players, basically doing Australian things. So to ask a cynical question which was asked on our comment thread, is this virtue signalling by the brand? I think there are a couple of things to me that indicate that it is. I think one of the first things is you look at who that who that ad was made by and Qantas's roster of agencies, you know, which includes agencies like Clemenger and the Monkeys. Um, and the ad was made by Brandon Story, which is a small creative consultancy run by two creatives and directors, Paul Chappell and Josh Whitman. And to me, that's sort of the first indication. If, if you are going to create a big ad that says a lot about who you are as a brand and what you stand for that's going to be splashed everywhere... I know if I was in marketing at Qantas, my first instinct would be to go to the monkeys or Clems and sort of get them to do the ad because they they have a huge and a very reputable track record with the brand. But uh, the second thing to me that indicates that it could be is where the ad is being aired. Um, Which is where? So the ad has already aired. It aired on Fox Sports during the Bledisloe Cup, during the Australia and New Zealand game. Um, It was promoted at the stadium but it's also going to run in fly, in Qantas flights and also across Qantas's social media channels. And as I said before, if you are going to run a huge campaign on what Qantas stands for as a company and, and diversity, I mean, why would you not run that sort of on main channels like radio and TV? Viv, your point of view? Well, I think it's interesting that Qantas have taken this approach because for so long they relied on the still call Australia home tagline, which... Fun fact, I actually starred in back in the day. I was in a special edition of the Sydney 2000 Olympics version of it. They got all these children dressed in white to stand in the formation of a kangaroo in the main stadium. So if you find that ad online, I am one of the... One of the children in the Qantas ads. This is brilliant. I can't believe you've never told us this before. <laughs> well, I was waiting for a moment when I could, in context, reveal it on the podcast, and the moment has finally happened. So, did you? Were you actually in a choir? Did you have to sing the song? Or? No. So the choir was too small. Anyone that knows me knows that I have a terrible singing voice. So I just had to mime uh, to the point where I got caught up in the moment and actually did sing. And they told me to stop. 
and just just to mime instead. So you're welcome, Qantas. Uh, but then recently they have moved to the No One Travels Like Australians campaign, which was criticised a little bit for not focusing enough on Australia and the spirit of Australia and focusing too much on Australians going out rather than bringing people to Australia and aligning aligning that. So I can see why they've moved away from No One Travels Like Australians to bringing back that sort of we stand up for Australia and this is the best that Australia has. By the way, I have a confession to make, something only finally dawned on me after I watched it for the millionth time. You know the current um, safety video they play features Aussies out and about and, you know, there's the New York cab driver and someone, you know, he sort of says, so, Aussie? And he's like, how did you know? Because you sat in the front. Um, and one of the lines is two guys come up wearing, you know, suits and ties and they, they, they order their their flat whites and say make it a double shot mate and um you know the sort of line to me oh big night and for so long i've thought they're meant to be cabin crew going to work after big night and i'm thinking i don't want my cabin crew to be hungover <laughs> and i've seen this and every single time it struck me i thought this is really weird and i've suddenly realized they just happen to be dressed a little bit like Qantas uniform but they're not they're not intended to be Qantas staff and i've been completely misunderstanding this every single time thinking this is a really bad look being having you know hungover cabin staff in 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 front of in charge of my safety well, well, yes, that, that would be bad brand positioning and, and much worse than what they've gone for now, which is Qantas stands up for the best of Australia. I wonder as well, uh, Tim and Abby, do you think they're sort of doing this saying the best of Australia? Are they trying to capitalise on the sort of left-right divide that we have at the moment and all the all the political stuff that's going on with leadership spills left, right and centre and and everyone versus everyone by saying we stand up for the best of Australia. Are they trying to get away from the worst of Australia? It's a good question, but I think that if they were trying to, it could have been made clearer. I mean, it's the political side of things is quite interesting and almost has been a bit of a trend in the ads that we've seen released in certainly the past few weeks. Vegemite's ad starring Pauline Hanson's a great example of that, um, which did cause sort of a bit of controversy on, on social media. So I think if that was the approach that they were trying to take, I must admit it wasn't something that dawned on me after watching it a couple of times. So if that's the way they wanted to go, maybe could have gone a bit harder there. Now, Abby, sticking with the world of ads, we saw a big departure from the creative agency Marcel this week. What's going on there? So Gavin Levinson, the CEO of Marcel, told Mumbrella that he'd made the decision to leave the industry after 20 years, so resigned from his role at Marcel, which he held for three years. But bad things don't just come in ones. Marcel also did lose their biggest client, Tiger Beer, who David Nobay, who's the creative chairman of Marcel. And Known to most people as Nobby. He brought over Tiger Beer when he left Droga 5 or when Droga 5 closed in Sydney and and it was Droga 5's last standing client. So that client's now gone over to Publicis in Singapore because they wanted a more local agency. So it has stayed within the group but has moved out of Marcel, which sort of leaves Marcel with not that many clients. Um, Maggi Noodles is one and Foxtel is another who they recently uh, got added to the roster when... Andy Lark, their new CMO, came in. Yeah, I wonder whether it's slightly history repeating itself because it felt like when Droga 5 launched in, in Sydney in Australia, 
you know, this big name, big name agency. David Nobay had been, you know, seen for many years as one of Australia's great creative talents. There was a lot of promise, a lot of, and I use the word deliberately, hype. And then it never quite landed and hit, and they ended up having to close it in the end. It felt the same with 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 Marcel, particularly with 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 Nobby at the helm, the big sort of face of it. It felt like they never really went beyond Tiger. It didn't feel like it was an agency that was projecting energy. Um, are we seeing history repeat itself a bit there? I mean, it is quite interesting when. Nobby left Droga 5, there were a few former employees that sort of came out and said that he did take his eye off the ball at Droga and sort of just just let things slip. And Tiger Beer has obviously been a client-agency relationship built on the relationship that they did have with Nobby. And it's quite interesting because if you look at his history, you know, he was an executive creative director at Saatchi and Saatchi. And then did some great work in those days. And then came up through the ranks and, you know, ended up being the creative chairman at Droga 5. But I think something that's quite interesting and and we do see with a couple of strategists, planners and creatives that sort of start at the CD level, creative director level, planning director level that then move up the ranks is sometimes what they're not taught or or they don't learn is the leadership skills and the management skills of how to actually run an agency and how to run client relationships because they have been focused for so long on just the creative aspect of things. Although again with Nobby, that was I think back in the Saatchi and Saatchi days, the reputation had been he was really close to clients and that was almost something that Saatchi struggled with when he left was for a while the agency seemed to go backwards because almost he had so many of those client relationships that you know his absence was was more noticeable and the, and I suppose the other the other question it's worth raising is Ad News reported this week suggestions that he might be leaving uh, Marcel as well which we uh, uh, as we record this we don't know the answer to that you're right we don't know the answer to that but what I was just going to say before then Tim is you know it must come to a point where having a relationship with the client is that enough is that enough to produce the work that they need is that enough to get the results that they need for the client I mean you know they've been in Tiger and Nobby have had a relationship for a very long time and maybe it just got stale so from both of you I'd be interested to hear what you think this means for the future of Marcel, even talking to people about this story, they immediately get confused when you're talking about publicists and Marcel because Marcel is also the name of their much-hyped AI program. So when you talk about something happening at Marcel, people get quite frustrated going, well, which one are you talking about? So one, I'd love to know why they have two things called Marcel. And two, do you think Marcel needs a bit of a reset? It feels to me like one of the issues is while you have David Nobay there as creative chief creative officer or whatever his title is, you, you're not necessarily going to get the top rank ECD coming in when they know that there's another creative above you with effectively, you know, one foot in, one foot out of the organisation seems to be how it feels. So it, it, it feels like that part of the reset is a completely new management. Um, and then it becomes a question of, does publicists have the appetite for that number of creative agencies in a relatively small market? Um, you know, well, if it is true, Tim, that Nobby is leaving, maybe there's your opportunity. Next, our media writer Zoe Samios joins us to talk about how the big media companies are faring in results season.
It's been the biggest week of financial reporting season and if it seems a bit noisy in this bit, we've now grabbed a corner at the Mumbrella Health Marketing Summit to mull over the numbers and the implications. So Zoe, welcome. Uh, We'll kick things off with Outdoor. We've had both APN Outdoor and Omedia announce their results this week as well as the ACCC confirming that the various mergers and takeovers can go ahead. So that means Omedia can buy HT&E's ad shell and APN Outdoor will be overtaken by international giant JC Deco, obviously depending on Foreign Investment Review Board approval as well. So lots of numbers flying round. APN Outdoor's net profit after tax was up 13% to $17.8 million. By comparison, Omedia's net profit after tax was up 3% to $9.23 million. Omedia actually had a much higher revenue at $192 million, which was up 11% compared to APN Outdoor's revenue, which was $162.3 million. Obviously, Omedia had a lot more costs this year with their various acquisitions and acquisition attempts Uh, but it's a growth story for outdoor and and the growth story seems set to continue so what's your perspective on how these mergers will now play out what's next for outdoor now that we've got a considerably smaller market well obviously there's the necessary processes that that will need to go forward. I think APN Outdoor has a few more, as you were um, mentioning before. But I think what we're going to see is, you know, there's going to be a couple of contract changes. So earlier this week, we also heard that APN Outdoor had won the Sydney Airport contract from O Media. So there'll be a couple of changes there. But overall, what we're going to have for both companies is a complementary offering. So now, O Media has a street furniture offering, something that they've always wanted and never really had. JC Deco has the I guess fly category if we want to call it that they have trains they have uh, buses and they've got a lot of road signs as well so what what we've seen is that both companies have filled out their offering what that means for them is obviously increased advertising spend we can only expect that that will increase as well as more specifically in digital for the smaller players increased competition I can only expect some of them compete against O directly some of them compete against J our APN Outdoor directly, what we're going to see is I think the smaller players will be looking to be strong points of difference uh, while the others will take up the, the bigger contracts and uh, major brands. And I spoke to APN Outdoor CEO James Warburton who actually only started in the role in January following the release of their results and he said that ultimately JC Deco coming in and buying APN Outdoor was actually a a better outcome than APN Outdoor buying AdShell, which it was in a bidding war against Omedia 4. I mean, he obviously would say that uh, now that that's the way it's played out. But what do you think is next for James Warburton if JC Deco does come in and, and take over APN contingent on the FIRB? Well, look, I think James is a very ambitious CEO. There was a reason that he came back into media James Warburton, for those that don't know, was also very briefly the CEO of Channel 10. He also has an extensive background at Channel 7. So he's well known in the media industry, came back in this year after some time with uh, the supercars. What I think will happen is he will go through these processes. What I would say about James is that just based on the last six months alone, he's massively into uh, innovation and transformation. 
JC Deco doesn't seem like a company in Australia at least that can do that transformation innovation piece. Steve O'Connor, who's the CEO locally, you know, the, the role is a very different role. Whether or not James fits into that, I'm not sure. I'm sure that James will be looking for a lot. There's a, a lot of other media roles that are currently in market and, and more that will come up. I would not be surprised to see James Warburton in a new role by, by early next year. And look, all these movements obviously have implications for the City of Sydney outdoor tender, which is still going on. Uh, that's sort of completely changed the market and, and, and who could win that contract, particularly now that O-Media's taking over AdShell. That means the AdShell brand is disappearing in effect within a couple of months. But you were just then as well, Zoe, talking about some of the TV networks and James Warburton's history. So let's move on to the TV networks who also had their financial results this week. How did uh, Nine do? So Nine actually had pretty strong results, uh, much stronger than last, last year in my opinion. So revenue was one point three eight. Uh, 1.8 billion rather. EBITDA was up 25% to 257 million and their net profit after tax was up 27% as well to 157 million. Now, a lot of that came from the TV network as expected, massive advertising spend. They've had a decent year in terms of uh, ratings for their television shows. But when I spoke to CEO Hugh Marks after after the uh, results, the thing that he said, I said, if there's one thing that you would, you know, attribute the success this year to he actually went to digital which I think is an interesting sector so they had record revenue growth uh, that was up seven percent the digital publishing uh, arm which includes uh, future women uh, nine has an 80 percent stake in future women the business that uh, Helen McCabe sort of started out uh, earlier this year Uh, that includes pedestrian tv which they just finalised their acquisition in. They bought the remaining 40% for $39 million. That's a lot of money. That is a lot of money. Uh, and it also includes car advice. So they've seen uh, solid growth in that area. They've also seen 89% growth in Nine Now, which is their broadcast video on demand platform for people who would like to catch up on some of their programs. They've got local drama as well. So what we're seeing is that while TV is definitely still very predominant for them, we're seeing mass Uh, mass growth in the digital sector and I can only expect that that will continue to increase. Now you listened in on the nine investor call following the results and I know that when I listened in on the Fairfax media call lots of the questions were about its future under nine. Were there as many questions on the nine investor call about Fairfax or are they not too worried about the whole thing? Honestly no. I I actually thought that every single question would be about the Fairfax 9 merger, there obviously were some, but I think, I'm not sure if it was the investors realising that obviously uh, Hugh can't make a lot of calls and, and, and everyone's sort of done to death his side of things because he will be, should it go through, the CEO of, of the newly merged 9 and Fairfax. What they were focused on was premium for, they were talking about addressable advertising, they were talking about premium digital advertising products. It was very, very intricate, which I found strange compared to, as you said, the Fairfax call. And the other network to release its results this week was Seven. So they announced a $134.89 million profit after tax, which was up from a staggering $745 million loss last year. A lot of that can be attributed to cost-cutting exercises, previous write-downs and an effort to reduce debt. 
revenue was slightly down from 1.67 billion to 1.62 billion, which sort of shows that there has been a lot of cost cutting and synergies and efficiencies and all those buzzwords happening. What I thought was interesting with the seven results as well was obviously PacMags. Now they're spruiking PacMags as a success story, as a turnaround story. And, you know, the continued success of magazines and why they are still interested in that arm of their business. Print and digital advertising revenue for PacMags was down 26.6% to $37.3 million. Print and digital circulation revenue was down 11.6% to $98.1 million. Their costs were also down significantly by upwards of $30 million, which translates to 21%. So... One of the questions that I had for Chief Revenue Officer Kurt Burnett when I spoke to him this week was, are you just cutting your way to profit and how sustainable is that and how long can you do that for? You know, you can cut and cut and cut so that the numbers look better, but is that really a success story? His response was, in 2018 in media and in 2018 in business, if you're not looking at cost cutting, if you're not looking at efficiencies, if you're not looking at that, you're not running a sustainable business and you're not a very good business person in effect. They also used the investor call to talk about increased ties with News Corp, especially now that Fairfax and Nine might be coming together. The investors were very keen to know what does this mean for Seven and News Corp. CEO Tim Warner talked about how their audiences are much more similar Seven and, and News Corp than Seven and anyone else and they already have some deals going on in, in Western Australia and they're going to have more commercial tie-ups without actually completing a commercial transaction. Now Zoe, he was very, very careful in his language to say it's not going to be a merger, a takeover, it's going to be commercial relationships, deeper ties, all those sorts of things. But it wasn't that long ago that Nine said they had no interest in Fairfax, they had no interest in print media, and look where we are now. So is everyone just playing it cool for now until we see the ACCC's decision on Nine and Fairfax? Is everyone just holding their cards close to their chest? Or do you think Seven genuinely wants to keep working with News Corp without being one with News Corp? It's an interesting one. I think for now at least uh, people are waiting because – you know, ultimately, and, and it should go through, but if it doesn't go through uh, the Nine and Fairfax merger, then that is sets a precedent for a lot of other mergers uh, in the Australian media industry. What I would say about is Seven's instance is, it, it's my understanding that Seven was actually in talks with Fairfax and was going to be acquired before the Nine deal sort of came in. If that's the case, it feels as though, uh, I don't know if News Corp is actually interested in Seven, but it feels as though, you know, Seven was almost ready to be bought come by us like where where you know we've set ourselves up cleaned ourselves up yeah we've got taper ties with News Corp it almost feels like I'm not sure 100% if there are deals going on maybe it is a bit of the Kool-Aid but it feels like a hey you know we're interested in you know hello pick us you know we're around as well so courting each other almost 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 I don't I don't think seven is in the position to acquire someone else unless it was something like prime which which I we haven't seen the results yet but I I suspect um aren't that great based on last year's um but in terms of you know publishing News Corp's the last one left. It's whether or not Rupert Murdoch, uh, who who runs News Corp, actually wants a TV network still. And uh, there was a point where they were talking about 10, but do they want seven? I don't know. 
And speaking of all of those sort of machinations of being a buyer or a seller, one of the other media companies to release its financial results this week was Southern Cross Oz Stereo, which owns a number of radio and television assets. It's radio assets being Today FM in Sydney and the Hit Network and, and Triple M. And when I spoke to their CEO, Grant Blackley, at a previous financial reporting season, this was right before any big moves had happened with the media reforms. And he said he wasn't sure if Southern Cross Stereo was going to be a buyer or a seller. And they'd looked into both. And he admitted that everyone was looking at everyone's books and, and working out what to do. You spoke to Grant again this time around after their results. Has his opinion on that evolved? I think the words he used were he's straddling both. So no, I, 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 don't, I don't think it's exactly evolved. What I did take from um, Grant and I's conversation, um, for those who haven't seen SCA, SCA's results, revenue was down 5%, uh, just a little over 5% uh, to 654 million. Uh, net profit was at 1.4 million down 98% year on year. 98%. 98%. That is a year big on number. Um, I think a part of that was regional license fees. Uh, our colleague Steve Jones was on the investor call um, and and wrote the piece, but that seems to be one of the the, the massive, I guess I'm looking for the word, but way things that weigh down the the the, the total result. Uh, but what I was going to say is that you know Grant's focus for the meantime seems to be on his own business. He did say today that Metro revenues he was disappointed in. They were at 242 million. He he said while it's improving and. Uh, he, he, he probably like more more growth in that area. A lot of that is still coming from Today FM Sydney. They've obviously, uh, for those who don't know, have had a very uh, tough Sydney breakfast slot to fill for a number of years. They have put in a new breakfast show with M Grant and Ed uh, earlier this year. The share did increase and in the fourth survey this year slightly came off a little bit. They also changed their mu- music format this year, which Grant, uh, which Grant talked a little bit about as well. What I think he's doing is... I think ultimately if the right person came along, maybe SCA would be snapped up. But it definitely seems as though he's just more focused on cleaning up his books and improving his books before he thinks about, you know, changing anything else. And just to clear up any confusion there, Zoe was referring to Grant Blackley, the CEO of SCA, but then Grant Denyer on the radio show. <laughs> yes, two different <laughs> grants. That's my bad. Grant Daniel Logie winner. And just to quickly wrap things up, we've also had iSentia's results come through. So their EBITDA, which everyone loves to talk about, which stands for Earnings Before Interest Tax Depreciation and Amortization, was $28.6 million, down from $41.5 million. Their exit from the king content debacle, for want of a better word, cost the company... $4.5 million. The new CEO, Ed Harrison, who, of course, has a background with Yahoo 7, is that right, Zoe? Yeah, that's right. Uh, said that Icentia had the right credentials to transform the business. He said Icentia was focused on a number of strategic initiatives as it looked to respond to market changes and prepare for long-term transformation. So that long-term transformation involves, surprise, surprise, an $11 million cost-cutting plan to be completed by 2020 financial year and a restructuring of the sales and account management teams. So it seems like there's a lot more cost-cutting efficiencies, synergies to come in that business as well. 
Yeah, Ed Harrison's definitely got a hard job on his hands. Yes, look, it's uh, one of the tougher media gigs out there, but I can't actually think of an easier one at the moment. All right, well, thank you, Zoe, for joining us to wrap up all of those many, many numbers. That is my pleasure. Next, this week has seen Mumbrella's Adam Thorne work on a massive investigation into the future of journalism training in Australia. So he'll be joining Zoe and our deputy editor, Josie Tutty, to discuss what he's found. now it's time for something a little bit different from our usual programming. In the studio with me is Adam Thorne, Mumbrella's bespoke editor. Hello. And senior media reporter Zoe Samuels. Hello. Now, the reason we've got Adam in with us today is for the last few months, he has been investigating Australia's journalism industry in a special feature for Mumbrella. More specifically, he's been investigating the murky world of unpaid internships and what it all means for those young Australians who one day hope to get their foot into the newsroom. And also, if his voice sounds familiar, that's because he's the man who says, are we live now? At the beginning of this never, podcast. I never agree to that, by the way. I never, I never agree to that. Yeah. Um, that's what you get for doing yeah. that. So yeah, Adam, unpaid internships have become such common practice now. I think a few of us in this room have started our careers through them. Um, but actually, what I realised when I was reading your piece is that many of them, or perhaps even most of them, are illegal. So why isn't anyone in jail? Um, because nobody has a clue what's going on. This is a completely, it's a complete mess. It's a completely unregulated um, industry. So just to sort of start off, there's three major problems of internships. One is that there's no need to register um, if you have an intern. So there's no need from the, from the intern or from the, from the business. So we have no idea how many people are interning, how common it is. We, we have, we've, studies have been done, but we've got no definitive sig- um, figures. Secondly, there's a lot of grey areas in the law. Um, so that nobody like knows exactly what is an illegal internship and what isn't an Ill- illegal internship. So the law at the moment essentially says that if it is an internship outside of a course and the business is deemed to be benefiting more than the intern, then it's illegal because otherwise you should obviously be paid and should have the same rights as a normal employee. But that's something very vague. So say like you are um, a, a media owner, if you're a newspaper or magazine, and you get an intern in, say, to kind of, you know, help out for a week and make the teas, and that person does a good job. So you say, we're going to reward you by letting you write something. Well, then technically then that, that could be illegal. So, you know, what do you do? So it's actually, it's tough on the interns. It's also tough on the media owners too, because a lot of them don't really know what's going on. So then the third thing to kind of get to your question is that in order to prosecute people, you need somebody needs to actually report them. Somebody needs to go and make a complaint to the fairer ombudsman. But people are too scared to do that because obviously the whole reason you do an internship is to get a reference. So if you, if you go off trying to take them to court, you're not going to get that. So um, my investigation found in the last year or two to um, May, um, not a single person had actually lodged a, a complaint, which means that there's no reprimands, there's no court cases, nothing's happening. And that's kind of it. In a nutshell. So how do media owners even start to deal with those 
that's such a subjective area I would assume if if I'm going into a media company as an intern what I want to do is be doing those small articles and Mm -hmm. things like that and that's what you're actually looking for out of an internship but then you're saying that that's actually where things could start to go into the legal gray area so how do they even start to tackle that exactly it's very difficult because like you say if you're an intern you probably do secretly want to be writing and contributing but then there's also media owners will take advantage of that there's an awful lot of small media companies particularly in australia who have got armies of interns that are basically doing a full-time proper job they are producing lots and lots and lots of content so it's very difficult i mean ultimately it's common sense if you're an employer you shouldn't basically be taking the piss you shouldn't if you get someone in they should come in as on work experience and they should be kind of mentored and they should be shadowing someone and it should be kind of obviously fair if you've just got someone sat there doing a lot of work then that's wrong and also if you're demanding a set of experience as well if you're saying this person must have qualifications in this and this and this and such and such then clearly it's not work experience clearly you're just what it is is slave labor under a snazzier title but what i'm i want to jump in there mm-hmm. because i mean i'm i was actually talking with someone today about this they were saying how much industry experience do you have and it's like would well, you count that from when you got paid mm-hmm. or do you count that from when mm-hmm. you started because if it's when i started it was it was five years if it's when i got paid it's about two mm. years so there's a massive difference but I, I I'm interested to see what you think about obviously the vendors have a role to play in this but obviously there's an intern as well and an intern understands especially in media mm-hmm. industry journalists interns starting out understands there's a value exchange they know pretty much in every company they're not going to get paid so what they're after then is uh, some sort of you, you kind of almost want to be churning out stories because you're building up your CV mm-hmm. in that I, I'm interested to see you know where is the line between slave labor and unpaid internships and if there is a line at all because I actually felt that the best internships I had was where I was being challenged and writing mm-hmm. as opposed to getting the coffee or you know just doing things for the benefit of the company even though I wasn't actually mm-hmm. getting paid exactly but in an ideal world in ideal world you would have been getting paid for that so one of the points in the in the article is that 30 years ago things were very different 30 years ago what would happen is you would write to your um, editor of your local paper and you'd say look have you got any jobs going and he'd like the cut of your jib he goes I like that I like the initiative of this uh, this boy or girl he'd drag you in for an interview he'd give you a grilling and then he'd throw you in and go here's a two-month contract get on with it and he you wouldn't pay you a fortune but he would pay you something and that your training would happen when your training happened you get paid for it the only difference now is that you're doing that as an intern and you're not getting paid anything for it so you're exactly right in that you need to get experience because you want to get a paid job at the end so you want to build your portfolio but at the same time you're not getting paid for it so you're having to do something which is basically illegal in order to get on the ladder and there's very little other option you've got but devil Mm -hmm. devil's advocate here i'm the intern i know that if i don't do this at all Mm -hmm. I'm not going to get a job but at the end of the you day. Have, you have no choice. You have no choice. That is one of the problems now. You have no choice but to work for free. You have no choice to do something which in most cases is probably illegal. And that is the, the, the again, the consequence of that is if you are from a background where you cannot afford to work for free for months or in today, I think years, then there's nothing you can do. And if you don't happen to be, um, if you don't, your parents don't live in a big city or near a big newspaper or magazine or, you know, essentially like if, you, if you're not 
in Sydney and Melbourne, then what are you going to do? Suddenly, if you're from a country town, it's going to cost you an absolute fortune to get into the city, to, to live there, and then to work for free. So what happens is you're cutting out all of the, all but the people wealthy enough or, or lucky enough to be in a position to do that. So what you're having is a situation that those that break into the industry are not the best of the best, but the best of those that can afford to make that sacrifice. Now, what this all boils <clears> down to is that journalism has essentially become a very very exclusive profession um, filled with people who can afford to be there what issues do you see that posing for the future of quality journalism itself like how can the press even hope to tackle serious issues like well, around social housing poverty discrimination if they haven't actually ever experienced any well, of that themselves the, the, the best example of this is is and it, it, it's, a, it's a bit of a controversial thing for me to say but if you look in the uk at the grenfell fire in london mm. um, and one of the um there's a lot of great investigations ironically that have happened in american magazines um sort of a year or so after this that have looked into how we got into this situation where these council flats were burned down because they've put these kind of flammable tires on the outside um, and essentially the residents of these blocks had been saying for years we need sprinklers like we need you need to invest in making this safer rather than spending the money on making it look prettier and they were going on and on and on about it and they were largely ignored one of the problems of that is that you probably didn't have a very strong local paper there um, and, and one of yeah obviously you didn't have a strong local paper but you probably also didn't have many you know working class kids at any of the local papers who might have lived in that council flat, who might have known of it. Because let's just say you did. Let's just say you had a you had a situation 30 years ago where you had strong local papers, you had lots of people working for them from a variety of backgrounds. What would have happened is somebody would have come into the newsroom and go, hey, you know what, in the, in the block of flats next to me, they keep asking for sprinklers. They're not getting sprinklers. Let's do a campaign. Suddenly that goes to the editor and it becomes a big thing and the sprinklers get put in and this doesn't happen. But by blocking out poor people, then these kind of stories don't come to light. And what you see a lot now around the world is you have elections and you find that the results of these elections are quite radically different to the polling and quite radically different to what the press say is going to happen because at the moment the press is not reflecting huge swathes of the country so that's that's what you're that's the danger more than any other profession you need to have people from all different walks of life all different backgrounds um in order to kind of you know hold people to account if you're blocking these people out that doesn't happen and that's very dangerous and it's a bit of a supply and demand problem as well. Obviously, I think a lot of the issues come down to the fact that there, there simply aren't as many journalism jobs as there used to be. So essentially, the, the, the publications can just be as picky as they want and they can just pick the people who they think are right for the job. Um, and that doesn't necessarily mean it's the person coming in without a university degree mm -hmm. or without any free internship experience that they can't afford. Yeah, so as part of my investigation... Um, uh, once the, uh, I think once a year, um, the, the Australian government um, publishes what they call the Graduate Outcome Survey. And what this is, is a survey of graduates and what they were doing four months after they finished to look at are they working, are they working in the same industry or not. And that, those tables get released in, in January. Um, and so what I was able to do is to get a breakdown of those that, um, that studied journalism and to found out, kind of find out how many of them how many people did a journalism course ended up working in journalism and, the, and, and four months on it was only 25%. So 75% of people that are spending around $19,000 or more to study a journalism course aren't even getting a job in journalism. So that shows you how much supply there is and how few jobs there are out there. Now, it might be the case that the actual number is more than, more than um, this 25%, because it was only four months. But then that, that then assumes that there's people that are then going on to intern for months or years after that. So that's...
that's what it's about, simple economics. Like 30, 40 years ago, when um, the press, both broadcast and in print, was a lot more profitable, then it was in everybody's interest to pay to train people up and to have good people. Whereas now, you know, they can afford to say, we want you to turn up with a degree. We want you to turn up with years and experience because they hold all the aces now. How do we resolve this? So it's a very difficult problem. Um, that's it. It's a very difficult problem. So the first thing we need is more data. We need knowledge. You know, we need to find out exactly how many people are interning, exactly how many of these um, are illegal. We need we need statistics is what we need. Um, and there's actually been precious little data in Australia compared to the rest of the world. So immediately what we need is more of that. It should be the case that if you have an intern, you have to kind of register that. We have to know because once we've got more, um, more data, then it will be easier to tackle these things. While it's all in this kind of shady grey area, then it's very hard to make things happen. I personally think the kind of long term solution to this is that companies over a certain size and then over um, a certain kind of profitability should be forced to spend a certain amount of money on training people up um, and, and paying for their education. I think what's happened in the last 20, 30 years is we're saying, oh, we're sending more and more people to university. Aren't we getting cleverer and smarter and better off? But all we've done is shift the burden of training onto people. So I think that should be, there should be legislation that forces companies to train people. I mean, I think we also need to move away from this idea of university education for journalism because courses vary massively, but a lot of them are, are I would argue, are ridiculous because if you want to be a journalist, a reporter, feature writer, whatever, there's about three or four books you need to read, really, that will cost you about $20 each and that you can read in a week. You don't need to spend $100, $200 on some textbook. You don't need to study for three years in a classroom in order to get out there and do it. So in particular in Australia, where the main route does seem to be undergraduate journalism degrees, that's just completely pointless. Um, and for me, media owners need to actually take more of a risk and say, you know, we're going to hire people from school that have got a bit of initiative and take more of a gamble. I definitely agree with that. Well, when I started um, in my lo local newspaper, I never actually interned at all. But the thing that got me that very first job as an editorial assistant mm. was the fact that I had a degree and I had an English degree. And if I didn't have that, then I definitely wouldn't have got that job in the first place. And I'm sure that's the case for many people within journalism who maybe say, oh, well, I didn't do an internship. So is it really that bad? But realistically, if I didn't have that degree, I wouldn't have got my, my job mm -hmm. in the first place. So... Um, when I interviewed a part of this, um, Gary Linnell, who is a former editor of Daily Telegraph, and he started off as a Fairfax cadet back when they hired from um, they hired people um, straight from high school. And one of the things he said, and it was a brilliant quote, is he said, in order to be a journalist, a good journalist, you need to be keen enough and curious enough. You know, you've got to be a bit of a Rottweiler. You've got to not be afraid to bang on doors, but you've also got to be questioning things. And those aren't necessarily skills you learn at a university. Like in, in no way does it say that these courses are pointless. Clearly, you're getting taught certain skills, but the raw skills, you, you're never going to learn in the classroom so this idea we funneled everybody through a nineteen thousand um, dollar system which largely doesn't prepare you is ridiculous and learning to pick up the phone is a skill that a lot of young journalists don't have for some reason or other I don't know if it's our society is now scared to talk on the phone but definitely in my first job there are a lot of the younger journalists who said well I'm, I'm a bit nervous to pick up the phone because I've never actually had to do it before because their course just genuinely yeah. didn't didn't so, prepare them for what they had to do. One of the things that you used to do on local papers, and I think it's almost, it doesn't really happen anymore, is what they used to call death knocks for anybody that's not familiar with this. So <laughs> a death knock basically is you, you work for your local paper and you're in a local community and somebody dies in some tragic accident, they get hit by a car, 
whatever. Um, and the idea is that what would happen is the day after that person dies, you would go up to the family's home and you would knock on the door. And obviously that is terrifying because the, the, the parents are obviously in a right state and you could argue the last thing they want is to speak to a journalist. But at the same time, the journalist has a duty to speak to that family, to report it and to give your parents an opportunity to be able to say something. Um, and what they would have to do is to go into somewhere, talk to these parents or uh, who are obviously distraught, kind of somehow win them round, gain their trust and leave with a photo. Um, they would have to go in and say, look, very sorry for your loss, but that, that picture there on the, um, on the mantelpiece, I need to take that because we need to put that in the paper. Now, that is terrifying, but that was the sort of training young people had at local papers that set them up, set them up to move up to regional papers, set them up to move up to like national or what in Australia, we would have the big state papers. That doesn't happen anymore because in local papers now, what you have is um, somebody working three or four beats. So you won't be assigned to one patch. You'll be assigned to three patches, usually, well, especially Australia sometimes God knows how many miles mm. apart so you can't actually get to know anybody in the local community you can't get any real scoops you can't get to know people so what happens is you sit in an office churning out press releases um, and um, you know if somebody does die if you even find out about it and report it um, the picture will be nicked from social media which is which is a little bit too easy and there'll be probably a photo if there was an accident there'll be a photo ripped from Google Maps Google Street View so this is a problem like you've taken away the art of doing any journalism so the the raw skills that used to be taught aren't being taught anymore so that's one of the other issues you've got too yeah I think there's a real danger with that I mean I did a five I was at university for five years uh, my degree was a lot broader it wasn't straight journalism but I would argue that the stuff that I actually learned the skills that I actually learned came from every internship that I did do mm. be it free or not um, the skills that you sort of learn and I, and I do think there is a value in some form of degree but I think what they were teaching you in that degree was not the content or the phone. I never did a phone call um, mm. as part of my degree. They never taught you how to do that. They, they taught you a bit about production. They taught you a bit about, you know, how, how to, to use WordPress. How to use <laughs> WordPress. That was actually a subject of mine. Uh, writing leads, you learn how to sort of write a mm -hmm. story. But the other stuff that how to deal with calling someone when they've lost their job, which is something mm. that I would have to deal with now. How to, um, you know, talk to people when they are about to make half their office redundant. What happens when people pass away? No one teaches you that kind of stuff. That stuff is very practical. That's probably what the universities don't yeah. offer now uh, that the internships do. Now, in, in saying that, I I've, I've, was very privileged at university. My degree had a compulsory internship as part of it. Uh, you did have to tell the university about what you were doing. They had to get its proper sign off. And I actually did it in Korea. I, did, I actually got a scholarship to do that. So... Technically, I was actually paid for, for that compulsory component. I did another three on top of that. But definitely the skills that you're getting when you're thrown into the field are far greater. Mm -hmm. What I would say about the degree is deadlines. You learn how to operate on a deadline because you've got assignments due in. Um, and the other thing that I would say is that, you know, you get this idea of persistence, right? It's, it's a very high demand, as you said, Adam, uh, field or, or, or career choice, person that sticks it out for five years, that fights through free internships on the side of that is the one that's going to get the job at the end of the day. And I had friends that did 10, 12 internships to just get that one paid job 
as well as doing full-time university. Mm-hmm. One, one of the things I'd add to that is, is, is one of the kind of old cliches among reporters is that in order to be good, you need to be able to talk to a prince and a pauper. You need to be able to go and talk to some guy who earns, you know, 500 grand a year and is running a company, but you also need to be able to talk to a cleaner outside as well. Because rather often the best stories do not come from the press officer or the comms team. They come from that middle ranking person that can see what's going on, but it's got nothing to lose by telling you. So again, if you're losing the skills of being out there, but you know being on the ground then you lose those social skills which again you can't get in a classroom this is this is just the talent of being able to kind of um it's a, a street smarts a street now whatever you want to call it being able to kind of get people judge things kind of know what to say those aren't things you can learn in a rigid university system i would argue yeah i definitely agree with that i mean even the journalists that i've known for, for years and years the ones that i've looked up to were not university educated they came in from uh, like you said, school, mm. got into a cadetship, um, which doesn't, they do exist now, but they're much smaller. I know that Fairfax Media this year, you know, relaunched their internship, pro, uh, their cadetship program rather, and are offering those opportunities again, but you worked your way up that way. And you can't, the, the skills that those people learn are just so different to what the people are learning now. And as you said, commuting, getting in to actually even try for these jobs. Mm-hmm when you're not earning any money. Well, what I would say exactly on that, um, so when I came across this Facebook group, Young Australian Writers, which was kind of a breakthrough for me because for a long time I was trying to kind of make contacts and, and speak to people on the ground. It's actually quite hard when I'm outside of that bubble now to get hold of these people. And, you know, there's something like, I think three, 4,000 people on this. And even though it's called Young Australian Writers, the vast bulk of them want to be kind of magazine feature writers or reporters and they haven't got their chance. So it's almost like a bit of a support group, I think I call it, um, in the feature. And I spoke to a lot of people on the phone I met up with people I mean the in the end I focused on one particular case study but it was a lot of people that kind of almost that were brilliant but I didn't think were quite quite the right example um and 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 what I did with all of them actually was just kind of ask them to send me their portfolio one because I was kind of intrigued and also because if I'd have heard of any jobs that come up I'd have I'd have put them their way and one of the things that shocked me is just how good these people were that the standard of writing was exceptional um what having kind of freelanced around I'm in Australia in the last sort of couple of years. There's some places I, I either worked or I kind of came across and I was shocked at how poor the standard it was. The standard of writing was was abysmal the standard of stories was abysmal and I'm like this is this is rubbish you know and I was like maybe the standard here is a lot lower and I don't think it is lower but the the best people have been locked out the great writers the great talents largely are banging on this door that won't open so Australia's got it but at the moment it's really losing out so just to wrap things up here if you were one of those people on that group today Mm -hmm. what would you say what was what would be your best one piece of advice that you could give them um I would say um my, my experience was that I pretty much um, refused to do any work experience um, stints. I did, I did a couple. Um, I walked out of one uh, after three days at the, um, and I remember that they, didn't, they just sort of largely kind of ignored me. Um, and this sort of senior reporter on the Wednesday, he sort of said, oh, tell me a little bit, bit about yourself. And I was like, oh, super keen. And I was, I was talking about my experience. And when he went, oh, sorry, I've, I've got to go to lunch. And I was like, no. Aww. So I just walked out. Um, <laughs> so I, I kind of refused because in my eyes, it's like, I'm not working for free. It's a disgrace. My advice is go and get some stories. Go and get some stories and give them to to, to local papers. Like the best way to start out if, um, if you're a student is it like a student newspaper because you've got, if you get a scoop, if you get a brilliant piece of writing, they're going to print it. They're not going to cut it down. They're not going to sub it. They're not going to interfere. Get that and build it up that way. Go and get a scoop at your student newspaper and go and give it to a local paper and say, go and print that. But don't go and 
and spend three weeks making the teas and hanging around that's not going to teach you anything go out there and try and get as many stories as you can published which again is difficult but that's the best route to do it but you, you usually will learn nothing through the actual process of interning at a lot of places so look after yourself I would say Thank you, Adam, for joining us. No worries. Thank you. Thank you very much. And that's all for today's Mumbrella Cast. Join us next week when we talk automotive marketing. Toodle pip. Joining us this week to talk about life in Adland is our advertising and comms reporter, Abigail Dawson. Hi, Tim. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't sure. I thought you were just going to I think he was going to say, and Vivian Kelly.